Welcome to the Silver Lining Podcast, where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, we chat with Catherine Tsai, a PhD candidate in history and East Asian languages at Harvard University about 20th century Taiwanese history, including Kominka, a Japanese colonial reform program, as well as Catherine's own personal experience with COVID-19. You've researched, as you mentioned, kind of the period of Taiwanese history between 1937 and 1945, when the Japanese colonial government implemented a program of reform known as Kominka in order to ensure Taiwanese subjects would remain loyal to them during the war against China. What did some of these reforms look like? And in particular, what was the role of shrine worship? Yeah, I think it's fair to say the Kominka period was one of the most transformative periods in the uh, colonial experience. Um, It was a wartime project that aimed to make uh, imperial subjects, um, well, well, basically, let me sorry rephrase that. It was a wartime project to make colonial subjects into imperial subjects. A good deal of that uh, is related to the war effort, right? Um, you wanna foster a kind of loyalty to the emperor and the empire. And so the colonial government in Taiwan implemented a series of four reforms. Um, one was national language reform, right? Encouraging everybody to use the Japanese language rather than their native language. Um, the other was military, voluntary military uh, enlistment. There was sort of a name changing policy, right? So you change your, um, your Chinese names to a Japanese one. Um, and then the, the fourth one was uh, the temple reorganization movement, right? which was to encourage basically the colonized peoples to start um, worshiping or attending um, sort of services at Shinto shrines. Um, In sort of the American historiography, the temple reorganization movement has largely been regarded as a failure. It's not as um, sort of political as the first three that I mentioned or at least the long-term effects of the of, of the long-term effects compared to the first three programs are not as visible, right? And sort of the at its basis, no, you don't really see a huge population of Taiwanese worshiping at Shinto shrines, right? and so that that's sort of one way to sort of measure its you know perceived failure or success, right? Whereas um, you could see people still speaking Japanese, right, um, in, in Taiwan from an earlier generation. What I sort of wanted to look at was not how it affected the culture per se, right? I wasn't interested in why the Taiwanese weren't converting to Shinto, but I was interested in what the program actually meant, right? What it was trying to do. And sort of the argument that I was putting forward was that we can't necessarily understand the temple reorganization movement in religious terms. Um, You have to understand it as a political project as well, because what they were trying to do is trying to make visible a process that was internal. In order to become Japanese, one way to sort of visibly see that you've succeeded in like making your imperial subjects become Japanese is to see them attend a Shinto shrine. But the problem is they encounter this problem where religious belief and sort of political ideology become so entangled, right? It's hard to sort of, it's sort of hard to completely, you know, say that they're separate. So despite the colonial government's attempts to try to force the Taiwanese to participate in Shinto rituals by destroying local temples, right? Or encouraging them to construct Shinto altars in their homes. One thing they 
uh, couldn't do is like actually make the Taiwanese believe uh, in Shinto, right? And so that's kind of the, the, the conflict that interested me is like, how did they try to resolve this, right? Try to basically make external performance match internal belief, but also how we, we have to understand this process of becoming an imperial citizens was both an internal and external project. And perhaps one of the fail reasons why it failed was because it couldn't um, make the two work. Another way to put it is you can never make the two work because they're, they're just so, they're very complicated, right? It seems that the Japanese colonial authorities advertised state Shintoism as a, certainly a patriotic and even secular enterprise. How yeah. do they reconcile this understanding with its intrinsically religious nature? I, th I think that's one of the most fascinating things about that program. And I, I think basically one way to help us understand is not to think of religion and secular or what is religious and what is secular in terms of the binaries imposed by the West, right? As in secular meaning something a-religious. I think in the colonial context, Shinto was thought of as secular because it was more modern, right? It was more rational. Whereas Taiwanese folk religions were thought as superstitious, right? Um, and so they were a kind of bad religion. This sort of tension between what you could call a secular Shinto is a, is a more modern creation. It emerged in, so basically in Japan, you have two different Shinto. You have religious Shinto and you have state Shinto, right? And so one can make an argument that there was an attempt to make Shinto not as religious, right? It, it's, you, you make, there's a, there was a political function in trying to unify Japan using Shinto, right? But the, the goal wasn't necessarily to make everybody in Japan believe in Shinto, right? There are Buddhists in Japan, there are Christians in Japan, right? But Shinto was sort of this unifying um, sort of ideology, arguably similar in a way where Christianity was used as a unifying ideology in the U.S., right? The U.S. uses a lot of religious statements, right? In our coins, we use in God we trust. In our, um, in our Pledge of Allegiance, we say, you know, under God, one nation under God. It's not necessarily imposing a Christian religion, um, although in contemporary times, it's sort of, there are certain groups in the US that, in the US that have tried to make that um, sort of argument, right? But um, when sort of these statements were inserted in the, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, the purpose was to create a kind of unifying ideology, right? And so like, you have to understand state Shinto in, in those sort of lens. It's not necessarily religious. It was used as a, a sort of unifying thing. Um, and so when that transferred into the colonies, there was already this inherent contradiction within the state Shinto and the religious Shinto projects, right? And it becomes even more complicated when the colonial government is trying to encourage the locals to attend Shinto shrines, right? Because on the one hand, they want to use it as a similar unifying force within the colonies, but on the other, they can't sort of disentangle itself from um, sort of its religious roots, right? Despite, despite its attempts to do so. So it's a contradiction that emerged within the emergence of state Shinto. Right. And can you expand more on how the Taiwanese population responded to the temple reorganization movement and perhaps even more broadly, the entire Kominka program? Oh man, that's a, that's a great question. In terms of the temple reorganization movement specifically, 
it really depends on which ethnic group and which religious group um, you're looking at. More broadly, it was an unpopular program, right? If you if you go into people's villages and you just start burning their temples, it's not it's it's not an action that would be looked upon favorably. And what's interesting is, um, you know, there was a government report to to see how the program was doing, and they interviewed locals, and you know, they found that um, basically they were subverting the program by putting pictures of their indigenous gods, you know, be, behind the Shinto altars at home, right? So they're so even though you have this Shinto altar at home, which um, shows that you are participating in Shinto rituals at home, so you were, you know therefore a good Japanese imperial subject, the reality was they were worshiping their own gods, right? Um, or they interviewed, you know, these um, sort of kids and asked them, all right, so what do you think of this program, right? Because kids are honest, right? And the majority of the kids say, you know, they hate it. They don't, they don't understand it, right? Um, so that was the, the, the general attitude towards the program. But what's interesting is there were, some elite Taiwanese, right, um, people who were intellectuals who could accept parts of the program, right, based on the idea that, you know, there were aspects of Taiwanese folk traditions that they thought were superstitious, right, and so the temporary organization movement was one way to get rid of those superstitions and try to uh, make uh, the Taiwanese more modern. There were Taiwanese Christians who also looked at the program and thought, this is a good way for Christianity to get an in, right? They're destroying the folk temples. You know, we're, we're a modern religion too, right? We're a rational religion, right? So we can, we can support this, this program, right? And take this opportunity to go into the places where these temples were burned and, and try to convert uh, the Taiwanese into Christianity, right? And we could Sort of convince the colonial authorities that this is a good idea because we too are a modern religion, right? We can tell them we're trying to achieve their goals. So that's that's sort of an interesting sort of response to it. It's not right. On the one hand, generally speaking, it was an unpopular program. But on the other hand, there are certain groups of people in Taiwan who who supported aspects of the program and saw opportunity to basically achieve. Um, certain ideas that have for the Taiwanese people. Now, in terms of the Kominka program overall, it's hard to, to say whether or not they were popular. There, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on the Kominka period. And what, what makes it complicated is that Taiwan's post-war history has a direct effect on how people who lived through that period understand uh, their colonial experience, right? So it's it's not as clear cut as in the uh, case in Korea, perhaps, right? Where there is still a very visceral reaction against Japanese colonialism. In Taiwan, because the the nationalists from, from China, you know, came to Taiwan um, and, you know, a series of, of um, Sort of traumatic events in, in Taiwanese history happened, right? There was the 228 massacre in um, 1947, and then in 1949, millions of um, Chinese from basically they escaped. They basically the nationalists lost the Chinese Civil War, and there was a huge exodus of Chinese um, to Taiwan in 1949. And then then 
you know, shortly after there's you know, decades of martial law and authoritarianism, right? And so those events also have an influence on how the Taiwanese who lived through both the Japanese colonial period and those um, in the nationalist period view the colonial experience. Um, so on the one hand, you can find newspaper articles or, or personal diaries that speak positively to the Japanese colonial experience or speak negatively to it. Um, but after you know, the traumatic post-war experiences with the nationalists, um, the sense I get is that there's a, a kind of uh, rehabilitation of the Japanese colonial period, right? Um, in a sense that sure, colonialism is bad, but at least you know, we didn't experience authoritarianism, right? The nationalists weren't, they didn't kill us um, in the streets, right? I think it's it's difficult. You could certainly find people who are discontent with the Cominka program. On the other hand, you know, there are also people who view the Cominka experience as positive. And I think a good chunk of that has to do with what happened in the post-war. So it's it's very hard to say. Really interesting that you say that because I have a quick follow-up question, mm -hmm. which is what would you say, you know, what does it take for people to adhere to policies imposed by imperial powers? Is there anything we can look to during the Kominka program that was quote unquote effective? Mm -hmm. You know, efficacy is a very tough question. Like in terms of like the temple reorganization program specifically, perhaps one can make an argument that it would have been more effective if they didn't burn the local temples, right? If they just imposed um, sort of Shinto shrine worship as a, a kind of patriotic ritual, right? Rather than trying to force the Taiwanese to internalize it. But it, it's hard to say whether or not that counterfactual would actually work. I mean, it, it's this, it's similar in terms of the other program. It's, it's maybe Japanese language, uh, the, Japanese the Japanese language as national language could work if they sort of created a more expansive educational program and weren't so punitive about people using their local languages, right? Or maybe it could have worked if they made it a national language, but um, didn't discourage people from using their own languages. Right? It's efficacy is always really hard to to try to measure. The other aspect is like I'm I'm also hesitant to 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 cast judgment on whether or not a program was effective or if it could be effective, uh, just because the the colonial conditions the the colonial conditions are so complicated, right? That it's it's not always a clear cut answer. The the other aspect about determining efficacy, it, it also creates problematic comparisons, right? Uh, especially between Taiwan and Korea's colonial experience. Like, I, I remember when I gave my when I gave a a, a talk on on the Komika or on the temple reorganization movement. Uh, one of the attendees asked. You know, given the sort of Taiwanese and Korean reactions to uh, Japanese colonialism, could you make the argument that perhaps, you know, the Kominka policies were more effective in Taiwan than they were in Korea? You know, I understand where the question is coming from, but it's not always the most productive way of thinking about it. Um, because the colonial conditions in Taiwan and Korea were, were so different, right? Even though there were sort of points of similarity. Although I just realized I also made that comparison earlier when I answered your <laughs> okay. question. <laughs> 
It's all right. We can move on from that question. Yeah, I feel like, okay. no, it's okay. I feel like your answers already kind of, kind of already gave justice to the complexity of it. And perhaps another question that'll help us understand this period of history in the modern world. It seems that Shinto shrines are hardly noticeable in Taiwan today. Why does this period mm -hmm. of history remain relevant to the Taiwanese? Is it because of that post-war nationalist period? You know, Shinto shrines in Taiwan have a very interesting uh, history, right? You could you could sort of see the diff you could basically examine Taiwanese the changes in Taiwanese history by looking at the Shinto shrines. A lot of them were destroyed uh, in the in the post-war period, uh, or they were converted into uh, martyr shrines under the Chinese tradition. Right, so um, one of the more complete Shinto shrines um, in Taiwan is the Hongxiao uh, uh, Shrine uh, or the Tsushou Shrine. It's it's sort of in the. It's I think it's it's located in Taoyuan, sort of a little outside of Taipei. And what's interesting is you could tell basically it used to be a Shinto shrine because the Tori, the Shinto gate, is still there. But the it's it's sort of Japanese origins were were sent were blacked out. So basically, in the back of the torii, there's a, a date. So it will say like Showa, and then the the year it was made, and then the month. But the Showa part is is completely sort of blacked out, right? Um, or they sort of filled in the char <laughs> the characters um, to try to erase its its Japanese origin. Um, and then if you look at the shrine itself, like there are aspects of the the architecture that was changed. So the this the roofs were changed to a more Chinese style. Well, it's not quite ceiling, but it's like sort of a on on the tops of the walls, right? Then you you sort of insert the the, the names of of um, of Chinese soldiers who basically you know died in war, right? Who sacrificed themselves for for the nation for China, and so that's an interesting transformation, right? It's it's one way for the nationalists to decolonize in a sense, right? By getting rid of um, these these colonial markers without fully getting rid of them, right? So it's, it's a very sort of, it's also very interesting that they converted them into martyr shrines, right? You know, specifically to honor the Chinese war dead. Now, now that particular shrine I mentioned is, is sort of a, a cultural heritage site. So it, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's not quite a museum, but it, it's, it's sort of an open public site um, that people can just go walk around. That, that's one sort of interesting aspect about sort of the life of shrines in the post-war period. Another interesting thing is sort of the sort of the discourses about the temple reorganization movement, and I think that has broader implications. In southern Taiwan, there is a central shrine called the Kusukusu Jinja. The Kusukusu is sort of based on uh, the local uh, indigenous Taiwanese Aboriginal uh, tribes language, and so there used to be a, a tiny shrine sort of. In, in sort of the, the mountain area that was uh, destroyed by weather. Basically, a couple years ago, it was rebuilt. According to the, the tribe members or the tribal elders who rebuilt it, right, it was one way for them to call their ancestors who had perished overseas in the war um, because there were Taiwanese Aborigines who, you know, fought for the Japanese Imperial Army in the Pacific, you know, who never came back. Right? And so their rationale was like, well, our ancestors worshipped at the shrine before they left for war, right? So let's rebuild it and use it as a way for, for us to call them back. Now, what happened online was it, it created a, 
a, a kind of small controversy, right? You have basically conservative, uh, conservative Taiwanese, right, that who who find stronger affinity with the People's Republic of China, or not People's Republic, but who find more affinity with China, right? Specifically, the idea of you know China being the Republic of China. Um, but say, well, oh, this is just like an, just evidence of like you know colonial brainwashing, right? They've never fully they didn't, they've never fully understood the fact that they were repressed, right? The Japanese didn't treat them equally. Um, we need to break this colonial mindset. And then you have the Japanese right wing <laughs> who picked up on this news and said, oh, see, isn't this great, right? Um, you could see like how the Taiwanese people feel such a great affinity with Japan, right? Because, you know, we were brothers once, right? Without acknowledging that colonialism was horrible. You know, in 1930, the, the Japanese colonial government, you know, engaged in a hu huge massacre of, of, of a Taiwanese Aboriginal tribe. Um, that's sort of memorializing this movie called uh, Warriors of the Rainbow. So completely ignoring that, that aspect of the colonial period, right, they, they sort of perpetrate this narrative of Japan and Taiwan as always being closely bound together, right, and, and sort of disregarding the horrible aspects of empire and colonialism. And sort of, <laughs> You know, the, the tribe that, that sort of constructed this are kind of like stuck in this middle, right? They have their own reasons for, for constructing it. And I, but, but sort of that gets co-opted by, you know, the Japanese right wing, right? To perpetuate a narrative of erasing the horrors of colonialism and empire. Um, but it also gets, you know, co-opted by certain sectors of the um, Taiwanese Han Chinese population perpetuating this idea of, oh, you know, ta Taiwan is still being brainwashed, right? They don't fully understand their colonial experience. I don't, both aren't great, right? I think if any, the people who have the right to sort of frame the narrative of their experience are the people who experienced it, right? Um, not the people who, who didn't and have different motivations. So I, I think that's one aspect of um, the temple organization movement that is, is sort of more consequential in terms of contemporary um, Taiwan. We know that you're recovering from COVID and had a particularly challenging time with the testing and tracing system. Yeah. Um, and you wrote about it in an op-ed for the Harvard Crimson. Um, mm -hmm. Would you mind just briefly sharing your experience with us? Yeah, um, so I, I contracted COVID right before everything shut down. Um, and uh, I, I, to this day, I still don't know how I got it. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I will never know. Um, but um, basically, uh, on March 8th of last year, I started feeling really ill. Uh, and at first, I didn't really think much of it. I thought I was just you know, stressed or I had bad posture. Um, and then I realized that like, it wasn't a normal kind of sickness I was feeling because I just, I couldn't sleep for two days. Like I was waking up every two hours and like those, those sort of fitful moments of sleep were not actually like deep sleep. Um, and so it had occurred to me that I was in contact with a friend who worked at Biogen, which was the initial short source of the COVID outbreak in Boston. Um, and so I was trying to get tested in my in my school's clinic. And 
I was constantly told that I didn't qualify for a test because I didn't travel from um, uh, South Korea, China, Italy, uh, or Spain, which were their four countries where they were trying to sort of test people if they um, uh, if they got if they started feeling ill. Um, and I wasn't in contact with someone who had a confirmed positive COVID diagnosis, right? And so I kept going back to the school clinic saying like, my symptoms are getting worse. I'm like, I'm, I'm still feverish. I, I feel chills, like I don't have an appetite. Um, and just constantly being told like, we can't test you, but like, let's conduct other tests on you and having all those tests come back negative. Um, and I was, fortunately I was lucky enough that I was able to get tested at a hospital because a friend um, basically uh, clued me into like um, that hospital opening up COVID testing. And that's when I found out. So I found out basically two weeks after the initial symptoms started. Um, and um, sort of that experience, you know, struggling to get tested. Um, and then, you know, facing all these roadblocks, um, constantly being offered alternative diagnoses, right? Oh, you don't, it's okay. You probably don't have COVID. It's probably the flu. Oh, it's probably not the, oh, it's not the flu. Okay, well, it's probably not COVID, but, um, you know, maybe there's something wrong with your kidneys, right? Um, and then also the experiencing the follow-up, right? After I got the positive COVID diagnosis, the lack of follow-up from, you know, my institution's uh, healthcare system sort of it made me realize early on how unprepared um, the university was, but also how unprepared this country was. There, there, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious to everybody now since we're more than a year into it, um, but there really wasn't a testing or tracing system. Um, there are huge problems with, you know, disparities in terms of access to healthcare. How is it that there are asymptomatic celebrities or athletes who can get tested and people who are visibly, you know, sick and like, you know, feeling more and more unwell who can't get tested. Um, and I think, Yeah, it's it's sort of it's it's an experience where I think one realizes that there's a lot of changes that you know both the academic community and sort of this country overall needs to change, right? Um, we we do need to do better in making sure that everyone has equal access to healthcare. We can't have this kind of disparity because at the end of it, it means the most vulnerable among us are going to get hurt by it right or you know as we've seen this through this pandemic they're going to die because of it um but the other aspect of it that uh, has also made me very anxious is um what in, in terms of how it will impact the asian and asian american community it, you you'd hope that people would be more empathetic during a pandemic, how this country has sort of, or how, how this country's former president has reacted to it is to scapegoat, right? And there's, there's a long historical lineage you could trace to that, um, sort of scape where you, where, you know, the nation scapegoats Asians for 
you know, in terms of in, in, in times of crisis. And I wish I could sort of be more eloquent about, about this, but it's it, it reflects a, a broader failure of our society to to try to be more empathetic and try to sort of educate them about the experience of Asians in this country, um, but also basically how how a virus works, right? You know, people aren't a virus. Well, you know, that about kind of wraps it up for our discussion today. Thank you so, so much for your time, Catherine. All right, sounds great. Thank you for, for inviting me and for, for having this chat. You've just been listening to the Silver Lining Podcast with Yanhua Chen, Jiyun Moon, and Jasmine Chagar. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges through cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Catherine Tsai, and thanks to you for tuning in.